All right, good morning, Four Oaks. Paul Gilbert, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Kalarn. So glad you're with us, whether in person or joining online. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we continue our trek through this pastoral epistle. We've entitled this series, Order in the House, really focusing on what it means to be the people of God. What does God say to us about who we are to be in relationship to him and to one another? You know, my wife Susan and I recently had dinner with some friends, and you know how the, the Surgeon General, whoever the nutritious person is, that guy with authority, um, you know, says you got to have 2,200 calories to have a balanced, nutritious diet uh, a day. We exceeded that three times over in one meal, okay? And so plenty of meats, right? No vegetarians among us. Mounds of creamy sauces. I was going to say vegetables, but absolutely not. Exquisite dessert, wine of the non-alcoholic variety. You understand what I'm saying? And so, so naturally, we ended an evening like that, which was like three hours, by talking about what? Weight loss programs, which is what we talked about. Now, what I'm about to say is it might be highly controversial, highly contested, but which I think is indisputable. Now, whatever program, quote-unquote, you gravitate to, and there's many, right? Noom, Atkins, South Beach, Sugar Busters, Weight Washers, Nutrisystem, Metafast, I'm sure I'm forgetting your favorite. While they all may differ, right, in how they get to where you want to go, all are alike in these two foundational ways, okay? Number one, if you want to lose weight, calories consumed have to be fewer than calories burned, right? There's just no shortcuts around that. If you can find a shortcut to that one, tell me my life will be transformed, okay? But, but, but that's fundamental truth number one. Fundamental truth number two about all these programs is that to complete the program requires some level of focus. It requires some level of commitment, exertion, dare I say it, hard work. There are no shortcuts, right? And as Kevin Bacon said in A Few Good Men, these are the facts. They are not in dispute. Now, the Apostle Paul takes this same paradigm of eating and exercise, and he is going to apply it to our spiritual lives. And he's going to tell us if we want to grow and flourish spiritually, there is a very simple formula. Now, understand, I did not say a simplistic formula. I did not say necessarily an easy formula. But I did say a clear formula, a straightforward formula. And that's where we're going to be in our text this morning. So if, you're, if you can, if you're willing, if you're able, please stand with me as I read God's Word this morning. It's a short passage, five verses. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. Paul says this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray together. 
Lord, in complex, confusing, turbulent times, we are thankful for the simple clarity of your word. And so, Father, we pray that not only would you give us the grace to understand this, but the grace to apply it, the grace to commit ourselves to it. And Lord, we ask now that you would meet us in these minutes together. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. Paul gets right to it in verse 6 when he tells Timothy that to be a faithful servant and to, to act in accordance with his calling, he is to give the church in Ephesus a paradigm or a program for spiritual growth and health. And it's going to be their paradigm. It's going to be our paradigm. Now, Pastor Scott last week in preaching on the text right before this noted that in the church in Ephesus, people were either taking away or adding something to the good news of the gospel. And if you're new around here, when we say gospel, it literally means good news. That's just, that's a shorthand way, a a, a one-word way of saying that God accepts us not based upon what we do for him, but upon what he has done for us. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to lay his life down as a sacrifice for sin, and we receive that sacrifice by faith and faith alone. But what Paul wants to really hone in on in this passage is that if you and I really want to see these gospel truths work their way down into our bones, just think about like a, a good massage. Just If we want to see these gospel truths really penetrate our souls, Paul says, I have a spiritual program to commit yourselves to. One that includes, and these are going to be our two points, spiritual food and spiritual exercise. And so that's where we're going. Let's talk first about spiritual food. Look at verse 6. When Paul says, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Now, the word train literally means to be nourished or to be filled just like you, would, you and I would be with food. And the food that Paul is talking about here, look back at, the verse, at this verse, he tells us is words of faith and the good doctrine. Now, words of faith probably refers to the Old Testament. Remember, at this point in the life of the church, there wasn't a bound New Testament, Old Testament like we have here. There was the Old Testament, which was the Bible of the early church. But then there was also what Paul refers to as the good doctrine. And this was the teaching of the apostles as it was given to the church, both in oral form and in written form. So when Jesus left, he entrusted the leadership of the church to the apostles. And so the early church would compile these letters, like this one from Timothy, from Paul to Timothy, and they would read them in the congregation, and they came to function as the New Testament. That's what we have with us today. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says. And so Paul's emphasis here 
is to really simplify things for us. We need things simplified. And here's what Paul is meaning to communicate here when he talks about the words of life and the good doctrine and being trained in them. He means to tell us that the foundational and principal substance, the foundational and principal sustenance as well of spiritual growth for the Christian is nothing less than the Word of God. See, the Bible is not a nifty tool for the really mature Christians. The the Bible is not the purview of merely pastors and elders and leaders. And then it's everybody else's job just to sort of, by osmosis, absorb whatever it is that's being taught or spoken about from the front or in community group or what have you. Paul is meaning to emphasize that just as much for him as for Timothy, as for me, as for you, the very word that we are to be nourished upon as believers and without which you and I will spiritually starve to death, literally, is the word of God. Just a question, just to get you thinking about this as we jump in here. Are you feeling spiritually malnourished this season? Are you feeling spiritually empty? Do you feel like your soul is sort of spread thin? That there's just not a lot of weight, spiritually speaking, to your life? That things are, are, are just right here on the, on the ragged edge? And if that's the case... One, Paul is going to give us a diagnostic tool to understand that, but he's also going to give us hope. And so Paul says our posture to the word of God is, is, I'm sorry, Peter says our posture to the word of God should be like a newborn to milk. Look at 1 Peter 2. Like newborn infants, Peter tells us, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So Susan and I, we, we did follow up this dinner with our friends by getting on one of these nutritional apps, and I learned all about storm eating. Do you know what storm eating is? I didn't either, and I realized I'm a storm eater. So, so storm eating is what you do when you're utterly famished. You come in exhausted from the day. Maybe you're anxious or worried or depressed, and it doesn't really matter what's in the kitchen. You just start eating everything in sight. Anybody, anybody been there? I'm just realizing, oh, that's just what I do for all of my meals, right? And, and it doesn't really matter what you're eating as long as you're eating because your body's just saying, feed me, feed me, replenish me. Anything, right, to make me forget the day. Anything to make me forget about that meeting. Anything to make me forget about whatever else is going on in my life. Even if there's only dog food in the kitchen, that will suffice, Right? which is a highly underrated snack if I don't say so myself. Now, anyway, our souls are designed in the same way. Our souls crave nourishment. Our souls will seek to fill themselves. Our souls will feed on something. In fact, I think it's an axiom. We cannot not feed our souls. Even when we think we're in a completely passive state, that might be the very time our souls are just soaking it up, right? Everything around us. That's why Paul says, look at verse 7, he, he tells Timothy, he tells us not to be nourished or to fill ourselves up 
with the equivalent of spiritual junk food. He calls them here silly, irreverent myths. And if you go back to Genesis, I'm sorry, to chapter 1 where we talked about this before, remember the, the teachers in Ephesus were, were really emphasizing this idea of, of genealogies and Old Testament stories. And there was all sorts of speculation and, and sort of added, you know, add-ons to the biblical story and to truth. And Paul just looks at all of that and just says, that is junk food. It might be tintillating. It might be exciting in the moment. It's just like coming home and like stuffing your face with little Debbie's for dinner, right? And you're feeling awesome for about 30 minutes. And then what happens? Boom, right? You crash. And then you find another box of little Debbie's and get it going again, right? And Paul says, no, no, that's what all this other stuff is, right? This stuff is the equivalent of spiritual junk food. And, and here's where I think Paul gives us, this is a real gift of grace that Paul gives us here. Just as we can look at the condition of our physical bodies, right, and know what we've been feeding ourselves on. Be honest with yourself. There's a little ribeye here. There's a little Krispy Kreme right back there, right? We can look at the condition of our souls, and you and I know instinctively, don't we, where we've been going for our spiritual nourishment, If you're a believer, you're not so spiritually obtuse, are you, to know the condition of your soul, to know know what your soul has been feeding on or maybe what it's not been feeding on. And so this is an opportunity for all of us to do some spiritual assessment. Guys, it's been noted by theologians, leaders, pastors all over the country that who the church is going forward into this next season is going to be very different in a lot of ways than who the church was even just a year, a year and a half ago. People will fall away. People, um, and this is all part of the Lord's pruning process in the life of the church. It's always, always been this way. But people will fall away. And we have to ask, why? What, what does that happen? Well, humanly speaking, Because when our diet has been social media, politics, Netflix, conspiracies, when that has been the soul or primary nurturance of our souls, when the storms come, and make no mistake, they come. Some of you are finding out right now in the middle of the storm what your soul has been sustained on this season. When that happens, and that's in spiritual junk food, has been my diet or your diet, there are no roots. And the house that was built upon the sand comes tumbling down. Just a reminder here, Four Oaks, you and I are always consuming something. And and here is my prayer, my prayer for me, my prayer for you, our prayer for our church family is simply this. God, don't let us be satisfied with anything less than the spiritual food and feast that Christ offers. And that's a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Because when that happens, somebody takes our little Debbies away. Somebody somebody takes away those things that our soul has been munching on that we think will satisfy, but they never satisfy. So it's a dangerous prayer. But, but, But it's such a good prayer. It's what our souls most desperately long for.
Just a reminder before we leave this point of what the Word of God says about itself. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 2 Timothy 3, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Do you feel incomplete this season? Do you feel like both feet are sort of planted firmly in midair? Paul says, nourish yourself on the word of God that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And finally, Psalm 119, my soul clings to the dust. And and doesn't that describe this season so well? Our souls cling to something. It's just dust. And then then David says, give me life according to what? Your word. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. So Paul's first point here is that for the Christian, and there's no way around this, We shouldn't look for a way around this. There's no other way to know Jesus than how he is simply revealed to us in his word. Paul says, this, Christian, is your spiritual food. What have you and I been nurturing our souls on this season? Secondly, then, Paul talks about spiritual exercise. Look back at the text. Look at verse 7, 7b. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Now that word for train is different than the one we just read. The one we just read about was about nurturing. This one literally means in the Greek to exercise vigorously. It's the same word that we get our word gymnasium from, so gymnasia. Now Paul here is pointing us to the language of the gym, of the locker room, of spiritual exercise. And for Paul, and here's what I want to show you from, this, from, uh, from the text from under this point, when Paul talks about training yourself, what he means is taking this word, which is our primary means of nourishment as a believer, and then commit to reading it, meditating upon it, lingering over it, praying through it, training ourselves with it. Now, the word gymnasia, which is the same word for train, it originally meant, and now my apologies in advance for the images this might conjure up, but I blame John Stott. Don't, don't, don't email me about it, okay? He's with the Lord, so you can't email him either. But anyway, the, the word literally means to exercise naked, okay? So the Greeks and Romans competed with no clothes on, okay? Not because they were perverts. Well, actually, they were perverts, but that's not why they competed with no clothes. They competed with no clothes because they wanted to race unencumbered. They wanted nothing in their way. They, they didn't want to be tripping over sandals or over articles of clothing. They, they didn't want to have to worry about this thing and that thing. And so this is the way they competed for centuries. Now, when I was in college, 
um, involved the camp, with Campus Crusade for Christ, I knew a number of swimmers. And swimmers, and some of you here are swimmers, whenever they would have a big meet, they would always shave. And here's, here's what this would mean. Remove all visible bodily hair, tuck your hair under the cap, right? Get that tiny little suit, which I have, but Susan won't let me wear it in public, all right? So that you can literally glide through the water, right? So that you can be physically unencumbered. That's what the word means. Paul says this is to be the posture of the Christian life when it comes to the word of God. Christian, we can't have a passive posture to this book. We are never going to ingest this book by osmosis. We have to get focused. We have to get serious. We have to get urgent. Dare I say it? We got to get mean, spiritually speaking. And when Paul says, train yourself in godliness, that word literally means godliness. Train yourself in the awe and in the reverence of God as he is found in the book. And what Paul is getting at here, and I think this just should radically alter the way that we view our own spiritual life and what we are nourishing on and how we're training ourselves for godliness. I think what Paul is pointing us to is that, Christian, your relationship and my relationship to this book is part of our spiritual act of worship. This is what I think Paul means in Romans 12.1, very familiar verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, to press into us just how crucial this is to our spiritual life, Paul tells us, he, this is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, and here is the trustworthy saying. Bodily, look at verse 8, bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean by this? What does it mean to be that the word of God or training in godliness has promise for the, first of all, the present life? Here's, here's what I think he means. Because feeding on and obeying the word of God does not insulate you from problems. Feeding on and obeying the word of God does not insulate you from suffering. However, feeding on and obeying the word of God does help to insulate you from sin. Not everybody else's sin, but guess whose sin? Yours and mine. See, the biggest problem in my life and the biggest problem in your life, and until we understand this and wrap our brains around it and absorb it, is not everybody else. Paul Gilbert's biggest problem in Paul Gilbert's life is Paul Gilbert. Because my sin is my biggest struggle. It's my biggest issue. It permeates everything. However, when we are being nourished on the Word of God and it's being ingested and absorbed into our souls, and when we are no longer habitually sinning, and I'm not saying not sinning, 
because that, that's impossible in this life. But when our posture is not one of habitual sinning, and it, isn't it interesting, life just goes better. Relationships are transformed. When two people do this together in marriage, marriage is transformed. It transforms parenting. It transforms your work relationships. No, it doesn't take away the problems. It doesn't make other people not sin. But you just draw a circle around yourself. And Paul says, when you nourish yourself on the word of God and train yourself in it, it holds promise. It holds hope for the flourishing life in this life. But Paul also says it holds, life, holds promise for the life to come. And here is, I think, what Paul's pointing us to here. When we take an active, urgent posture to the Word of God, receiving the Word of God, when we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, when we are call, making our calling and election sure, this is the stuff that God uses to empower our perseverance. This is what God uses to bolster our assurance. This is, this is what God uses to speed us along in this life to run our race. So that one day when we stand before the Lord, we're not going to say, God, look at all the amazing things that I did. You're going to say, God, by your grace in my life, you produced in my life good works. And now I offer them back up to you as a stewardship. May all the honor and glory be yours. God, Christian, isn't that what your soul deeply longs for? On that day when you're standing before the Lord, I promise you, you will desire nothing more than to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I, I welcome you into the joy of my presence. Now understand something with all this talk of eternal life and the life to come. Paul was no aesthetic. Now what's an aesthetic? Aesthetic is someone who, who tends to look down or devalue the material life whether it be what you eat or drink or sexuality or marriage or the arts or enjoying God's creation, Paul was no aesthetic. So that's important to understand when we read this little qualifier here. When Paul says, verse 8, while bodily training is of some value. Now that, that word some literally means short or small or puny. Paul's not degrading the spiritual life. We could go to all, we're going to get to some of these texts later in 1 Timothy where talks, Paul talks about eating and drinking and how this is all part of being made in the image of God. What Paul is simply saying here is that relative to spiritual training, please hear this, physical training is not that it doesn't have any value, it just has a limited value. That's, that's, that's pretty obvious to see, Right? Paul's, no, no matter how many times you work out, no matter how pure you keep your body, no matter how much you insulate yourself from risk, the reality is that you and I, our lives are but a vapor. And insulate ourselves all we want. Life on this earth, unless Jesus comes back and we pray that he does, will end in death 
for all of us. And so Paul says, of course, physical training has value, but it's limited in comparison to spiritual training. Now, if we were to rewrite this verse in the cultural script and worldview of the day, it might say something like this. Spiritual training has, has some value that helps you get where you want to go. But physical training, boy, we know that's of immense value. That's of priceless value. That's of enormous value, which is what you would expect, right, from a culture, a secular, materialist, closed system worldview that simply says this life is all there is. Christian, if this life is all there is, then by all means, you and I better hold on to it at all costs. Because every ounce of life we have is slowly dripping away. And I think personally, we have seen this script manifested, this idea that physical training is of the utmost importance. I think we've seen it manifested in itself in a couple of ways, maybe even with some of us and me, in, two, in a couple different ways that seem contradictory, but I want, I want to show you, I think they both have the same root. And the, and the first way this has manifested itself is simply this. Have you noticed, and clearly you have, that at almost no other time in human history, maybe, we have a preoccupation with preserving physical life. There is almost a religious fervor, isn't there? A zeal, an obsession about our health, about not getting sick, about we are in many ways a consumed culture, a preoccupied culture. We're a culture living in fear. We're a culture living with a misconception that we can create a risk-free life. And let me just say something. We can't, nor should we. Living a self-preoccupied, risk-free life, guess what, guys, is not a biblical value. It's a cultural value. It's not a biblical one. Because oftentimes that very mindset hinders us from growth. It hinders us from service. It hinders us from mission. It hinders us from community. Now, there's a second. Now, if I didn't offend you in that one, I'm going to offend you in this one. Okay, so here we go. Equal opportunity offender here. Not only, though, do we have a preoccupation with preserving physical life, but some of us might have a preoccupation with preserving a way of life. See, some of us are preoccupied. Some of us look in derision at that first group, right? Just trust God, right? Just, just come on. But this group can be much more preoccupied with resisting control. Directives authority, holding on to rights, holding on to freedoms, holding on to preferences at all costs. And can I just say something? That's not a biblical value either. See, these two impulses, while they may seem to be at odds, actually grow from the same root. And what is it? They are both laboring and toiling for things which will not last. They are both laboring and toiling for things which have, if Paul were here, he would say, it's not that they don't have some value. Of course they do. I love being an American. I love being healthy. I love all the, the privileges that come with this. 
But what would Paul say? Next to training and godliness, Paul, this has limited value. See, Paul says, look at verse 9, that training and godliness is for what we toil and strive. Why did Paul say, this is the one thing I'm going to toil and strive for? He said, because we have set our hope in the living God. You see, being preoccupied, whether it's preserving life at all costs or a way of life at all costs, betray an energy that we are really toiling and striving absent of hope. Paul says the reason that we can toil and strive for training ourselves in godliness, look back at the text, is because we have set our hope on the living God. Paul says our hope's in the living God. It's not on perishing man. It's not on a system. It's not on a way of life. Our hope is not built upon ensuring that we have a foolproof way of, getting, of, of staying healthy or not getting sick. Paul says, that's not my hope. It shouldn't be our hope. Place your hope in the gospel, Paul would say. Place your hope in Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 10. For this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. What does Paul mean here? When Paul says Jesus is the Savior of all men, he's reminding us that Jesus is offered up. Not just for one segment of of people or another segment. He's offered up for everybody. All types of people, rich, poor, racial, racial makeup, doesn't matter, geography, time in history, socioeconomic status. And Paul says, this is what animates us. This is the heart of our mission. Because life is fading and only Jesus Christ and his word are eternal, this is what we're toiling and striving for. Jesus is the savior of all men. But he's not just a generic general savior. Christian, here's what you need to know. Jesus is the specific, soul-satisfying, special savior of everyone who believes. He's a savior of all men, but do you know he's especially your savior? If you are trusting in him, following him, placing your faith in him. And if that's you today, there's only one way to know him. Yes, we can know him through the creation. Yes, we know him in relationship with one another. Yes, we, we, we know him as we pray to him. But guys, all of those things are subject to human fallacy and fallenness. But the one thing that is not is this book. And Jesus says, if you want to know me, you know me here. And so, Christian, nourish your souls on my word. Train yourself in godliness according to my word. Because this has hope. This has promise, not just for this life, but in the life to come. Because physical training has some value. And praise God. But spiritual training, training in godliness, has value 
for all eternity. So let's get to it as people of the book. Let's pray.